0: last of those I am statements from the Gospel of John. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine. So start reading with me if you would in verse 1 of John chapter 15. John chapter 15 and verse 1. As Jesus is going through these final uh, instructions to His apostles, uh, final words of comfort, uh, final words of encouragement uh, before He is going to be betrayed, and crucified uh, in verse 1 of chapter 15, as they've gone from the room and are on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, here's what he says I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. All right, let's see if we can understand exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Of all of the I Am statements that we've been over, perhaps this is the one that is uh, subject to the most confusion. What exactly is Jesus talking about? To whom is He saying these things? And then what application can we make to us today, as Christians who are trying to live for Jesus? So I've got a few questions for us to answer tonight. Um, Jesus doesn't just say, I am the vine. Well, he does say that later on, but he begins by saying, I am the true vine. So let me ask you, what does that imply? If he says, I am the true vine, that implies what? There are false vines. That's exactly right, or at least something that is the opposite of true. So who is that? Jesus says, I am the true vine. Who then is this false vine? Um, Well, there's lots of discussion on who that might be, but this same type of terminology where Jesus says, now this before wasn't it, but now I am the true version of of what it is we're talking about, he actually uses that kind of terminology a couple of times earlier in the Gospel of John. Uh, Turn to John chapter 6, if you would, marking your spot in John 14. Uh, This is a chapter that we studied with uh, some detail when we talked about Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. Well, He could have said, I am the true bread of life. And He says something very similar to that in verses 31 and 32. Now you remember, they came to Jesus, they were seeking a sign because they wanted to be fed physically. And Jesus wasn't going to put up with that. But they say in verse 31, In talking about what sign are you going to work, in verse 31 they say, Our fathers ate manna in the desert, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Okay, so what's the context and a contrast here in John chapter 6. Jesus is the true bread from heaven, so what is not the true bread from heaven? Physical bread, and specifically what physical bread? Manna. Well, I mean, as he quoted, that is bread from heaven, right? But Jesus says even though that is bread from heaven in a sense, it is not the true bread from heaven, I am the true bread from heaven. And and so the contrast here is not between something that is true and something that is false. Instead, the contrast is between something that is true, the reality, and the imitation of that reality. Uh, We might put it in terms of the imitation and the genuine article, the shadow and the reality. Uh, To put it in theological terms, the type and the anti-type, right? So, it wasn't that the manna from heaven wasn't really bread from heaven. It was, but it's not the ultimate bread from heaven. It's not the true bread from heaven. That was Jesus Christ. So, if we think about what he says about being the true vine in those terms, I think it helps us to understand what the not true vine was, what the imitation vine was, uh, that concept uh, of an imitation vine, an earlier vine, makes us should make us think of the Old Testament because that's an image that God used a great deal in describing him and his people. That God was the vine dresser, he was the owner of the vineyard, and the children of Israel were a vine, his vine. Okay, so let's, let's look at a couple of examples. Turn to Psalm 80, if you would. Psalm 80. Uh, this is a pretty positive example. If we kept reading, it would turn a little more negative. But let's read a few verses starting there in verse 8. So this is Psalm 80 and verse 8. Almost exactly in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 80 and verse 8. You have brought a vine out of Egypt, the psalmist says to God. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow, and the mighty cedars with its bows. She set out her bows to the sea and her branches to the river." Um, Verse 12, why have you broken down her hedges so that all who pass by the way pluck her fruit? The boar out of the woods uproots it and the wild beast of the field devours it. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and visit this vine and the vineyard which your right hand has planted and the branch that you made strong for yourself. So the image here is that God is the vine dresser. And the children of Israel are this vine that he's planted, but now he's abandoned them and they're calling him back so that he might prune them and care for them and that they might grow and be fruitful once more. So Israel is the vine, God is the vine dresser. If we turn over to Isaiah chapter 5, we see a couple of examples in Isaiah. Uh, In chapter 5 it's a more negative image. Isaiah chapter 5 this is poetic language we understand that it's an image that that's being used in verse 5 or verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 5 now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard my well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill he dug it up and cleared it on its stones and planted it with the choicest vines He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it, so he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. So God planted a vineyard, he has this vine, he expects good grapes, instead he gets bad grapes. Um, I mean, maybe you can make mayhaw jelly out of it, but that's about all it's going to be good for, right? Okay, verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard, God says. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? God says, I've done everything to make this vine grow and produce good grapes, but it isn't. And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. "...I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For, here's the application, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant." He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. So what is God going to do to His vine as the vine dresser because it's not bearing good fruit? What's He going to do? He's going to cut it down. He's going to throw it into a fire. And He's just going to let it go wild. But there's even this idea of the vine that looks forward to the Messiah and a glorified Israel. Turn to Isaiah 27, if you would. Isaiah 27. Start there in verse 2, if you would. In that day sing to her a vineyard of red wine. I, the Lord, keep it I water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I keep it night and day. Fury is not in me. Who would set briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them together. Or let him take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me. And he shall make peace with me. Those who come he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world. With its fruit. So, looking forward to the Messiah, he says, All who come are going to be made part of this vine. And they're going to bear fruit where, does he say? They're going to fill what? The fill the world with fruit. Okay, so, you're a Jew, you're one of the apostles. You're listening to Jesus and he brings up this image of a vine and God is the vine dresser and taking some away to be burned and others are going to be pruned and you got to bear fruit if you want to stay part of the vine. What are they going to think of? I mean, this is just a sampling. There's probably at least a half dozen other passages that refer to Israel in this way. And so they're going to think back to that and that imagery, right? They're going to think back and say, oh yeah, oh yeah, Israel is the vine and God is the vine dresser, but Jesus says to them in John, He says what? What is the vine? Who is the vine? I am the true vine, He says in uh, chapter 15. Okay, so if Israel was the shadow of Christ and His vine, then what is Christ? and His vine. Israel's the shadow. What's the reality? The the church. And He says the church is that true vine. I I am the vine and you are the branches that replace the nation of Israel as the people of God. So this image is talking about the church. And like He talked about in Isaiah chapter 27, this is the true people of God who are not made people of God by their physical birth, but people who are made, people who are made the people of God, His vine, by their spiritual birth, by their choice to come and be part of God's kingdom. And so Jesus says, "I am the true vine." And if you want to be part, if you want to be a branch, you can be. Uh, Romans chapter eleven. We'll do one more verse uh, that maybe shows this. Now, in Romans, the Apostle Paul doesn't use a grapevine. Instead, he uses the idea of an, an olive tree. But the, but the concept is the same. In Romans chapter 11, after he talks about how the Gentiles are now part of the kingdom of God, he says, you know, just because you're part of Israel, just because you're a Jew, doesn't mean you're excluded from God's kingdom. You can still be a part too. But many rejected Jesus. And so Romans chapter 11 Let's look beginning in verse, um, uh, let's start in verse 26. No, 27. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the Father. I'm sorry, that's chapter 10 I should be reading from. Romans chapter 10. Hmm. Hey, y'all are helping me out here. I need the help. Ah, yes, okay. All right, let's start there in verse uh, 17. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear." And if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. The natural branches were the Jews who were part, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and the Gentiles were grafted in, He says. Uh, Verse 22, Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fail. Severity, but toward you, goodness. If you continue in His goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off, and they also if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. And so the image there is, it's your choice, and it's mine. If we want to be part of the vine, we can be part of the vine. Okay, turn back to John chapter 15. Um, Anybody have a thought or comment there? Okay, here's the next question I want to ask. All right, so we see the imagery... Christ and His church, but let's see if we can get a little more specific. Who are the you here that he's referring to? Who are the branches? And we start by asking the question, to whom was Jesus talking on this occasion? In John chapter 15, to whom is He talking? What's the occasion? Where are we? chapter 14, Uh, we just studied about that not too long ago. There's a comforter coming, right? And so he's talking to the apostles. Uh, Eleven are there. Judas is already gone, right? Uh, And so he's talking to the apostles, and he's speaking to them. And so the apostles, first and foremost, are the branches. Uh, We see that when he says, you here, that's who he's talking about. If you go back to John chapter 14 and verse 25... These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. Is that talking about you and me? Were we present with Jesus? Let me hear your head rattle. Yes, we were present with Jesus. No, we weren't. But the apostles were, right? Later on in this same chapter, in chapter 15 and verse 15, he, he brings up this idea of bearing fruit again. And he says, No longer do I call you servants, For a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father I made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name He may give you. He says, I chose you, chose these apostles. In verse 27, speaking to the same men, He says, and you also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So who's the you? Let's say it all together on three. Who's the you? One, two, three? The apostles. That was almost half of everybody. The apostles, right? Um, And so, if we understand, first of all, that these branches are the apostles the one who was taken away would have been whom? Judas. That's exactly right. And he was really a called apostle. He went out and he worked miracles just like the others, but he turned away and he became unfruitful, and therefore God took him away, where he was no longer part of Christ and part of the vine. But but I don't think it's wrong to make the application to us uh, being further branches from the apostles. So we have Jesus, Jesus is the vine, the apostles are the branches, and we are further branches that come out from the apostles as well. That same sort of terminology is used in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. The image there is of building a temple and Christ is the chief cornerstone, right? And what are the apostles? Built upon the what of the apostles and prophets? Built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Which really it's the message of the gospel that they were preaching that's that foundation. And then we as Christians are what?
1: We're stones.
0: We're living stones who are being built up into a house of God. So Jesus is the... The cornerstone, we've got the foundation of the apostles and their message, and then we're the stones that are being built up into the church of God, the temple of God. Here the image is, Jesus is the vine, the apostles are the branches, and then we go out from those original branches and we bear fruit as well based on the message that they preach that will go out into all the world. And contextually, it's not just something that we reason through to say, okay, well, I guess we could be included in that as well. Contextually, we can, we can make that case as well. We're given a clue. Um, how does Jesus describe the relationship between Him and this you, the branches?
1: Five times
0: He uses this same term in these eight verses. Abide, Abide in Me. He says, and then sometimes it's abide in me and I'll abide in you, right? Well, if we look forward as Jesus is praying a prayer in chapter 17, this is the same occasion. This is all, these are all of Jesus's words before he's going to be betrayed in the garden. And if we look to chapter 17 and verse 20, when he's praying a prayer for his disciples, right before he's going to be betrayed by Judas and arrested, This is the closing prayer of this section. Here's what he says in verse 20. After praying for the apostles, he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the word may believe that you sent me. Jesus says... You need to abide in Me and I in you. And then His prayer for all disciples who are going to be made by the words of the apostles is that we would abide in Him and He in us as He is in the Father. And that we would have that kind of unity with one another just like a vine and branches are the same plant. So too, we should be one with one another. We are one with Christ One with the Father and the apostles and all other genuine Christians. That's the kind of unity that we have with one another. Okay? So, thinking back to chapter 15, what does it mean then to be taken away or pruned? Reagan, might I make one more comment on verse 20? Yes, sir. I'm not going to turn down comments now. Where he says they'll believe through their word. That sort of takes away the idea of just the red letters in the Bible. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, that, that Jesus is going to send the helper. And who's the helper? The Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's going to guide them into all truth. He's going to remind them of all things that happened. And others are going to believe based on the words that they share. That's why the foundation is the apostles and prophets. Not the apostles and tongue speakers or the apostles and miracle workers because the apostles and prophets were the ones who shared the word of God from the Holy Spirit. And so we believe based on that word. In fact, we're going to get there here in just a second to talk about that a little more. So what does it mean to be taken away then? He says, you know, my my father's going to take them away. Uh, He's going to take them out to the brush pile and burn them. Those who do not bear fruit. So what does it mean to be taken away? Yeah. That we, like Judas, we can fall away too. Our hearts, to use the metaphor of Matthew 13 in the parable of the sower, our hearts can become rocky and thorny. And for those who once knew the way of truth and become entangled again in the world, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Peter says, we can fall away even after we after we are saved, even after we abide in Christ, if we do not bear fruit. Notice what he says in verse 6. If if anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire that they may be burned. Um, In verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. But on the other hand, the second part of verse 2, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So what does it mean to be pruned? Any uh, gardeners in here? Raise your hand if you're a gardener. Any? Going once. Okay, maybe in times past. Okay, we've got a few gardeners. Uh, So what does it mean to be pruned? What are we doing if we're pruning something? You tear away the dead, the okay. un- unusable, so that you can have a clean start and it grow better. When the new- yeah, so the idea is it grows better because you're tearing away the dead, you're tearing away the old, you're tearing it away so that it might grow better. And so every branch that bears fruit, he's going to prune it so that hopefully it'll bear even more fruit. He says, I'm going to try and put you in the position to succeed if you're someone who's really trying to uh, serve me. You're going to be improved. You're going to be refined. And sometimes that might be a painful process. So how does God prune us? Well, there's lots of ways that we might give for that, but the text gives us a specific way that we might be pruned. At first, verse 3 doesn't make much sense. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Uh, Whoa, I thought we were talking about pruning. Now he says you are already clean. Well, let me give you a hint. In Greek, the word for pruned is the same word for cleaned, okay? So you are already clean is another way of saying you are already what? Pruned. How? What does he say? How? Because of the word. That I've given to you. He says, I've refined you. Our, your minds are renewed by the Word, and we become more and more like Christ. We're changed by that Word. Sometimes painfully, when I look into the Word and say, well, that's not what I am. I have to change, right? And so God prunes me. He refines me, sometimes painfully, into what He would have me to be. As Romans 10.17 says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And so we will be taken away if we don't do what? We don't bear fruit. If we don't bear fruit, he says. I'm going to take you away. All right, let's see if we can uh, loosen this up a little bit. All of us must produce some fruit to remain in the vine. And Jesus has little patience with those who refuse to bear fruit. Uh, that's in a literal sense, right? Remember when uh, that in that last week there's that fig tree and he comes one day and he sees it and it's got lots of leaves it's a big fig tree and he gets up there and what what is it no figs no fruit and the next day he curses it right and the next day what happens withered it's dead you know if you're not useful for me then why are you here Jesus is saying right and then there is the the parable that he tells of the barren Fig tree, remember? And for three years the Master comes and it bears no figs. Maybe that's like three years Jesus was in His ministry and if you haven't gotten on the boat yet, then what are we doing, right? And I'll give you a little bit more time to to make it better and to fertilize it and so forth, but if I come back and it's not not where it needs to be, if it's not bearing fruit, what's going to happen? Cut it down. Why does it take up the ground? Something else could be planted there that does bear fruit. That's how important bearing fruit is for the Christian. So here's what I want you to do for the next couple of minutes. Uh, With the people who are around you, I want you to discuss a little bit, what does it look like to bear fruit? In, In the New Testament, what is bearing fruit? So we're thinking about what fruit do we bear? It's super important to bear fruit. He's going to chop us off and throw us into the fire if we don't. So what does that look like? What fruit are we supposed to bear? All right, I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to work on that. Uh, Just brainstorm some ideas so that you'll be ready to share with the rest of the class. Okay. Uh, all right, let's see what you got here. Super important to bear fruit. Rapid fire, give me some fruit. What, what's some of the fruit that a Christian might bear? Faithful children. That's a great example, okay? You can go visit the sick. That's bearing fruit. What else? Being hospitable to others, okay? Being salt and light. Excellent. Let's. Well, our purpose—that's what we're supposed to be. All right. So, what is that? What, what are we doing? Seeing a need. someone needs a if someone has a need, then I'm going to serve that need. I'm not going to wait for somebody else to do it. What can I do to serve that need? Okay. What else? Share the gospel. Share the gospel. Absolutely, that's bearing fruit, right? So we're sowing the seed, and God is going to give the increase. What else? <coughs> the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of those are fruits that we bear as Christians because Christ is in us. Okay, what else? Bear each other's burdens. Bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Encourage others. Encourage others. Grow, right, grow in grace and knowledge, okay? So we're bearing fruit in our own lives, right? And how close we are with God, what we know of God. What else? Let me ask you this, is there fruit that every single Christian can bear? Absolutely, and some of those very things that we're talking about. Let me give you a few examples just with some Scripture references. Sanctification is referred to as bearing fruit. When we set ourselves aside as holy, uh, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, praise and thanksgiving, the fruit of our what? The fruit of our lips. When we sing, we're bearing fruit. If you come to worship and you just sit there like a bump on the log, that's not really bearing fruit in worship if we're not praising God and thanking God, Right? Uh, Good works, growth and knowledge are both referred to as bearing fruit in Colossians. um, Sharing and receiving material things with brethren, see a need, and we're going to fill that need in whatever we can, and preaching the gospel of Christ is referred to as bearing fruit. So there's just six examples of some of the fruit that we might bear as Christians. Well, well, let's think about in this immediate context uh, of John 15. Let's keep reading in verse 9 and see if there's any specific fruit that he demands In this context, as the Father loved me, so this is right after he says, bear much fruit, uh, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the commandment that I that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. So what? That's like a three-point sermon. What fruit does He say that we're supposed to bear? Joy is one. Love is another. Obedience is the third. In this order. We love. We love God. All of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. As the Father loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. a Love for the Father. Love for one another. Love for Christ. We're obedient to God. If we love Him, then we'll keep His commandments, right? And if we love Him and we keep His commandments, what's going to be the fruit of that? We're going to have joy. His joy remains with us, and our joy is full. Now people don't like that, especially that middle one, but that's the pattern. Remove obedience, and well, you didn't really have love to begin with if you don't obey God, and you won't have joy because you don't really dwell in Him. And so, we're supposed to bear fruit, lots of different kinds of fruit, but specifically in this context, we're supposed to bear the fruit of love and obedience and joy. And if we're not bearing that fruit, what's... What's the result? We're cut off. We're taken away. So we need to look in our lives. Am I bearing this fruit? Is my life one of joy? Because I obey God and God's way is always best for me. And that obedience is not not born out of some drudgery. It's born out of my love for God, my love for Christ, and my love for others. Jesus says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Bear fruit, because that's what he made you to do. All right, thank you for your good attention tonight.